0: This is the Negotiate X Podcast, show number forty-two, part A. You're listening to Negotiate X Radio hello and welcome to the negotiate x podcast i am your co-host and co-founder nolan martin with me is my good friend as always mr aram denisian aram how are you doing sir
1: i'm great i'm, I'm especially great because i get to introduce a friend and colleague today to the program you know over the years nolan and doing this work i've been introduced to some just amazing people who are not just thought leaders in in this practice of negotiation and, and conflict transformation, but are out there doing really hard work. And, and today, our guest, Hal Abramson, really epitomizes those things, uh, a thought leader, a teacher, uh, and a practitioner. So let me introduce Hal uh, and get us going. Hal's a full-time faculty member at Turo Law Center in New York, where he has taught, trained, arbitrated, mediated, and published articles and books on negotiations, mediation, advocacy, and intercultural and international disputes for more than 30 years okay when once you go over 30 years you just go 30 plus right because because how, how <laughs> how's really good to me. Like, sounds good to me he's only <laughs> how's, how's only 45 years old right <laughs> so he's been doing this since a teenager Hal's teaching training experiences include helping the negotiation program at the U.S. Air Force Academy, where I had the opportunity to serve with and work with Hal, as well as teaching at two of the top alternative dispute resolution programs in the U.S., Cardozo Law in New York City and UNLV Law School in Las Vegas. Hal has also taught or trained on dispute resolution in 19 countries on six continents. Did you not get to Antarctica, Hal? Is that- uh, yeah, I have to have something to look forward to. Okay. <laughs> Uh, Hal's received numerous awards for his publications in mediation, such as the annual book award of the International Institute for Conflict Prevention and Resolution with his book, Mediation Representation, Advocating as a Problem Solver. And even more recently, his article on Nelson Mandela as a negotiator, which received the CPR award for the best professional article. And I hope we can talk a little bit about that article and and your choice of Nelson Mandela now as we get in. Hal's experience uh, expertise extends far beyond the classroom as well. In connection with the new Singapore Mediation Convention, he represented IMI and IAM and assisted the U.S. State Department when the U.N. drafted the treaty on enforcing cross-border Mediated Settlement Agreements. In addition to participating in drafting sessions over three years, he served as an expert advisor to the United Nations Commission on International Trade Law when he designed three mediation education programs for the UN delegates. He also co-chaired the first symposium on the convention after it was adopted by the General Assembly. The symposium included speakers who helped draft the convention and prepared chapters for a book that he edited and has been published. This is only a fraction, folks, of the accomplishments in 30 plus years of being an educator and practitioner. It is a joy to welcome you, Hal, to our program. Thanks for being with us.
2: Well, thank you.
1: Thank you for the invitation.
2: This is a great opportunity. Appreciate it.
0: Absolutely, Hal. So as we kick things off here, I'd like to kind of know more about your journey of how you got to become a negotiator and then also were there any key developments along the way on that path?
2: Well. It's an interesting question for all of us, why we get involved in this field. And in the reality is we all know we're negotiating all the time. So the question is, when do we realize we could use a little bit of education? <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and how to do a little better because, you know, I've taught mediation for many years and when you teach mediation, that's a delight because that's new to everybody. But when you teach negotiation, everyone's already a negotiator. Everyone's already got experience. <laughs> everyone's already a, expert to some extent. So for me, when I was in law school, which more than 30 years ago, I like that reference point. Let's stick with that. <laughs> more than 30 years ago, I there weren't were no negotiation courses. It was a, a brand new field. It wasn't even a field at that point. This is the early 1970s. And I was interested in the subject at the time, but there's nothing to learn. The material wasn't there. So then I practiced law for a while and there's a public policy work and then decided to go back to school after eight years. And I go back to a a school in your neck of the woods, close to your neck of the woods in Boston, and go to the Kennedy School of Government. And I said, huh, maybe there's a chance to take a course in negotiation. Is there such a course? And there was one, but not the Kennedy School, not the law school yet. They had some courses in their early stages, Uh, but there's a course being offered at the School of Education. And so I said, okay, I'll take that. And I go sign up for the course. It is filled. It's packed with hundreds of people. They bring in guest speakers. What else do you do when you have a new idea, a new course? Yeah, <laughs> there's, there's no textbook yet. There's no uh, single expert. So they brought in a bunch of speakers. And one of the speakers was a guy by the name of Roger Fisher. And he comes in and he says, hey, I just published a brand new book. Again, more than 30 years ago, (laughs) and he starts describing to us getting to yes and what this book is about. I actually have a first edition of that book, a hardcover one of that. It's green, by the way, the book.
1: Oh, I thought it was chiseled out of stone hell.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I think Roger Fisher probably would agree with that. (laughs) So that began, that became my first formal introduction to thinking about and studying dispute resolution and negotiation as a separate field. It was a hodgepodge of a course because the field had not been very well developed at that point. And it was done using a Harvard Business School model of a lot of case studies. And one of the case studies that they did was, it's pretty interesting from a historical perspective, was on the negotiation or releasing the hostages in Iraq. And what happened was, that just happened a year or two before. So it's really in everyone's mind. And we know what a disaster all that was with the hostages being held for over a year and then all being released on January 20th, the day that President Reagan gets sworn in as president. And so I'm in this class and we're studying what could Carter and his team done differently. And, of course, I'm at Harvard. So this is not a group of people that lack confidence. And everyone right. had opinions on what they should have done after the fact. And I'm just sitting there just listening. I, I had no idea what should have been done. We all were frustrated by uh, the protracted process and horrifyingly protracted process. And so um, at the end of the discussion, is a new class, large class. The professor announces, by the way, we do have in the class someone who is there. Hmm. We had in the class one of the two women hostages. We didn't know that. And the whole room went silent. And everyone just stopped talking. And this woman started describing her perspective of what was going on while she was there for a year as a hostage. And the less I walked away with, we had to have a lot of humility when it comes to understanding disputes and understand what's going on because she shared stories with us that many of us had not even contemplated and had a perspective that we didn't have and it became for me a very early lesson in thinking about negotiation is that we have to be good listeners we have to be ready to learn we have to be ready to hear other people before we can be deciding how to proceed in a negotiation so that was a very formative experience for me
1: thanks thanks Hal. and i'll tell you and i know we'll we'll build on this you, you you always in my opinion in the years i've known you you know just demonstrate that humility the willingness to Take on someone else's perspective to listen and to learn. So, thanks. You know, in one of your articles that I that I've enjoyed reading, you discuss the difference between good practice, tactics, and tricks. It might be helpful for our listeners to maybe just you know, kind of as we start off here, hear some of the, kind of the theory that informs your thinking and your practice around negotiation, whether it's that model or or anything else. Kind of, you know, what, what is it that drives the way you think and approach negotiation? Well, that article
2: you're referring to is a relatively recent article uh, that's called Good Practice, Tactics, and Tricks and Negotiation Styles. And it was a really interesting research project for me. Because one of the things that has always struck me in the field of negotiation is that a lot of people have made catalogs of lists of the do's and don'ts of how to negotiate. And two people that are very influential in my thinking who I have extremely high regard for as professors, and had done some really uh, significant uh, informative work in this field. There's Charles Craver from uh, George Washington uh, Law School, and John Wade, who at th- that time was from uh, uh, in Australia teaching there. And they both spent a lot of time cataloging a lot of specific strategies and tactics and ploys used by negotiators. And uh, John, what he did is he created these baseball cards. And he'd have these baseball cards, and on, on one side it would say, if the person does X, flip the card over, and here are six responses. Hmm. And then what Charles Craver has done is that he has written article after article describing, cataloging all these different detailed strategies employees people engage in that uh, was designed to inform us of what to be aware of when you go into negotiation. I look at those lists and I go, how are we supposed to memorize this stuff? Yeah. How are you supposed to teach this stuff? So it got me thinking about, is there a way to simplify this, to make it so that this information can be accessible at your fingertip in a negotiation that is fast-moving, you have no time to reflect, you have to go to what I like describing as your default process. That's all you can do. You can go with your instinct. And you need something to inform that instinct. And that's when I started developing this idea called good practices, tactics, and tricks. Good practices is a general category that covers all the things we are always teaching in negotiations. You know, identifying interests, being good listeners, ethics, all the things that we talk about. Roger Fisher talked about his and Bill Urey, and they're getting to Yes book, that comprise good practices of negotiator. And everyone's always teaching that in any any textbook, any class. And so that becomes good practices. Tactics is a really intriguing second category for me, because tactic is what people use all the time in negotiations, but they're really, upon closer examination, a little disappointing that we do this stuff. Hmm. So for example, one of the common tactics we all know, everyone uses, very common, no one gets upset when it's done is extreme first offers.
1: Yeah.
2: What I like to say to people is, you know, could you try to explain this to an eight-year-old? Explain to people, to an eight-year-old, here's how to be a good negotiator. Go into a negotiation, make an offer that's extreme, that you know no one's going to accept. It's not really a real offer. You're going to hide that for a while. And then, eventually, you'll get to what you really want. Now, when you present it that way, it becomes so obvious how silly it is. And yet, it is so ingrained in our culture, it's so ingrained the way we do things, and it's been supported by a lot of psychological analysis, that we have to accept that that's the reality. Right. But let's label it. Let's not label it as a good practice. Let's label it as a tactic. Right. And here's the key. A tactic poses risk. Good practices mm-hmm. do not. So a tactic poses a risk, meaning that when discovered, it could hurt or undermine or dilute the confidence in this negotiation relationship with the other side because now we know the person's going to do that kind of thing now the key tricks the third category and i want to distinguish between tactics and tricks because tactics are risky but acceptable tricks by definition are risky and not acceptable got it and i think that's a useful distinction because it helps give a negotiator something to think
1: about when they're making their choices
2: as things are unfolding
1: very rapidly. Love the distinction that you make between those three and the tie to choices a negotiator has at the table. Yeah, makes it much more uh, tangible and useful for for someone who's, as you said, kind of need to be informed about my instinct. Sure, so that's where that came from.
0: So then how do you advise when responding to someone using a dirty trick?
2: I think that, let me say, one thing first about dirty tricks or tricks. I got criticized creating that category by some people. And the criticism is if you create the category, then you're approving it. And my answer to that is I'd rather create the category and recognize that's the reality in the marketplace than pretend it doesn't exist. Because once you recognize that we have something to discuss, which gets to your question, how do we recognize a trick? What do we do with a trick? Well, first, we have to know that's out there because there's a big incentive to engage in tricks because if you're successful, the payoff is enormous. And so we know people do it. People are going to lie. People are going to engage in different kind of games if they can get away with, like, good guy, bad guy routine, if they can pull it off. The risk is if they get discovered, by my definition of tricks, if discovered, it can destroy the negotiation tactics don't tricks do so now the question is how do you discover it so i'm gonna give you another story bigger stories to illustrate things it is a a dated story but it has a currency today it was dated it would been more dated a couple months ago in 1992-93 i had the fortunate opportunity to spend a lot of time in russia and i was there doing a number of programs building a program for students to come there to study and doing program, rule law program with the American Bar Association uh, during the time when they were struggling to build a democracy. We were trying to open up a summer program there. And the dean sends me there and says, why don't you see what you can figure out? And he just says, let go there. So I go there. And I knew people at Moscow State University. Moscow State University is the premier university in the whole, whole former Soviet Union, without a doubt. One of the top universities in the world. And then we definitely want to have it there, if we can work it out. This is 1992, 93. Soviet flag just went down. Everything is open. No one's really quite sure what's going on. So I go there for a five-day negotiation. It turns out to be five days. And we're meeting every day, trying to negotiate whether we put together this program. And we get toward the end of the program. We worked out all the cost of the program. People were terrific. I was working with. And at the very end, I think, okay, I think we got it. It's going to work. We know what the costs are. And then they said, oh, by the way, there is a 30% educational tax that we have to add to all this. I go, 30% educational tax? I didn't know anything about this. So said, well, that's a big, we, we just have to pay it. It's a, it's a tax imposed by the Russian government, and I just wanted to let you know. I said, well, that changes the economics of all this, at which point I had with me a Russian attorney. And she pulls me aside, and she says, no one pays that money. No one pays taxes in this country. And I said, ooh, is this a trick? It says, <laughs> what is going on here? I don't know. And so we say, how do how to do a trick? We first have to do our due diligence to figure out whether it's a trick or not. Because if you call someone on a trick, they're going to be offended. And you got to be sure you got it right. So I didn't know what I had here at this point, but I knew this was going to be problematic. So I remember reading Getting to Yes and Objective Standards. Then I happened by happenstance having dinner with a, a friend in Russia who was doing business, an attorney, and I explained to him what just happened. He said, oh, that tax is an exemption for educational institutions. I go, really? I said, are you sure? He said, I'll get back to you mm-hmm. tomorrow. He gets back to me next day. He said, yes. I said, great. So instead of saying you're not going to pay this, because to this day, I never know whether if they collected what they to do with it. And by the way, everything is up for grabs in that country at that point anyhow. And, and I really wanted this relationship. So I said, why don't we hire an attorney to give us an evaluation of whether or not the tax applies to this transaction? Because if <laughs> it does, it changes the entire economics of this transaction. And we agreed. We hired an attorney we agreed to. And the attorney came back with an opinion that said, it uh, doesn't apply. Tax never applied. We avoided the issue whether it was a trick or not. Hmm. And we proceeded.
1: So naming it, did not it didn't matter whether it was a trick or tactic because of how you chose to engage with it by going to standard, by a standard. Absolutely. Yes, yes. Now, it doesn't
2: always work that way. Sometimes a trick is really a trick. But you can find out by going to objective standards. If the trick is a lie, you can figure it out. Like going to objective standards. That question we love in negotiations. Why do you want that? <laughs> so I ask the why question.
1: You know, Hal, in that same, in that same article that you wrote about practices and tactics and tricks, you also, it's it's there's a big piece in there around negotiation styles. How can our listeners, if they were to understand their conflict or negotiation styles, how could that help make them more effective and help in helping the choice, choices, decisions they're making, whether it's in personal or business or professional, or whatever the context uh, sort of negotiations are involved in. This was a side benefit of this project. And while I characterize it as a
2: side benefit, it turned out to be a very valuable one for me, anyhow, in terms of the work I do. And that's distinguishing, as I did this article, between negotiation style and conflict style. And up to this point in the literature, at least the stuff I've read, the words are used interchangeably. And usually, at least the stuff that I've seen, they usually think about negotiation or conflict style as being one of these five categories that have been widely used and tested. You know, the cooperative, competitive style, are you uh, compromising, are you an avoider, are you an accommodator? And what I started discovering, because I never really used that much before that article, that's people Some people are using those materials as a way to label people's negotiation style. Oh, so you're a competitive person, as if that's the end of the discussion. Or you're a cooperative person. Take the survey. And I started thinking, that's not really helpful because then it just says to people, that's who I am, and that's the end of the discussion. So I started thinking, we really have to make a distinction between conflict style being what may be our inclination. Remember, I teach in a law school, so you know what their inclination is. Uh, They're going to be very competitive. That's probably one of the reasons why they are in law school. But we know that that's not always a very effective approach. In fact, there's a lot of costs associated with a competitive style. So I started thinking, when teaching this, and for us, when reflecting on our own approach to negotiation, it's useful to distinguish between what our inclination may be due to either our genetic makeup, our environmental makeup, our cultural upbringing, whatever it could be. It's not a question of good versus bad. It's a question of just who we are. right? And we all know people who have different inclinations, whether it's cooperative or voider or whatever the category might be. um you know, look at them, and say they're bad people, it's just what their personality. So then I said, let's separate that from negotiation style. Negotiation style is what we get to choose to do. Public style is who we are. Hmm. In fact, this pithy little statement in my article is, Conflict style is who we are. Negotiating style is who we want to be, who we want to be. And there it says to us, we have choices to make. And those choices take us back to thinking about good practices, tactics, and tricks.
1: That's really, no, that's nicely explained. And, and I, I like the the identification that sometimes when we box somebody into a style, That's just how I am. That's how they are. Now, all of a sudden, we're we're trying to say, so the outcome's predictable for saying, if, you know, who do I want to be? And especially if we go back to what you were saying about tricks, how do I shape this intentionally to achieve achieve the goals, the objectives I'm trying to achieve? Absolutely. And
2: it gives us space to have a conversation about the stuff that we love teaching and training people on. That's right. Because then it says, okay, well, we're now teaching. I, I did a program a number of years ago for a group that well known at the time was the largest insurance company in the country then it became a very bad front page news and that's AIG and i did a training program for them for with, a, with another colleague to train them on mediation advocacy and at the end of, and these are people who have done hundreds and thousands of mediation, more than i'd ever do in a lifetime and they were actually in good faith smart people And I come in there and what do I say to them as a trainer, I say, you know, nice try. (laughs) You know, (laughs) you've had a good life so far, but bad choices. Now I'm going to teach you the way you should do it. That was not going to be well received. Also talk about having a little humility. They had experiences I didn't have. I thought there's a chance for me to learn from them. So I said, we're going to show you another set of options. And then you're going to figure out what can work or not work in your practice. And we decided, because we had to roll out this program to the entire company, we came up with a, uh, a little contest to develop a slogan for the training program. And they picked the, the slogan, and we and they came up with names. And the slogan they selected was negotiations choices. Choices. And I think that's what got me thinking. That was back in 2007, 2006 that's when I started realizing this is really about making choices it's not about me posing what you should do as a teacher or a trainer it's about teaching people that their are choices to be made
0: hey everyone nolan here need to end the conversation right here uh so sorry but join us next week as we continue our conversation with hal and if you haven't already please rate review and subscribe to the podcast we will greatly appreciate it thank you for listening to negotiate x radio